0: Well, this morning we're back into our series, Come and See, from the Gospel of John. It's been a, a little while since we were here. We took a break for, for Advent and New Year's, but now we're back. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to the Gospel of John. John is, uh, just a quick, let me catch us up a little bit. John is one of our, our four biographies, our four Gospels of Jesus. Now The word Gospel literally means good news, and in the first century, when, when this was written, uh, it, it carried the weight of a victory announcement, gospel did. When, when armies went out and, and won a battle and they came back, came back, they came into the town, they came into the cities announcing good news. And so the, the, the title of gospel of John is one that carries this weight of a, a proclamation. It's a cause for celebration. Something incredible has happened. John's gospel is the last of the, the four that we have in our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was written the latest. And so, uh, as such, his, his writing is a little bit different than the other three. Now, when we started this series in September, we said that uh, John is probably aware of the other three gospels that are, that are out or that are circulating. And so, in some ways, he's writing to, to fill the gaps a little bit, not suggesting that the other three have missed things or, or, are, or are wrong in any way, But he's really highlighting in his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is God himself. And he really works on on showing us and and revealing to us the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, John, the evangelist, John, the author of this gospel, was one of the three in in Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. And so he had some of the greatest access to Jesus as they traveled the world for the three years or so of Jesus' public ministry. Now in chapter three was where we left off just before Advent. We saw two things really through the, through the whole of chapter three and it's important that we kind of camp at least on one of them for sure. First, Jesus had this long discussion with Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews, perhaps the ruler of the Jews. He came at night to talk to Jesus about who he was and what he was doing, and he, and he asked some questions, and, and, and Jesus launched into a, a long discourse talking about being born again, which really confused Nicodemus. Then he talked about being born of, of water and spirit, and talked about eternal life. Jesus talked about the mission of the sun in verses uh, 16 and 17, and he talked about how light, God's light, had come into the darkness, which was interesting because they would have been speaking in darkness. And somewhere within that section of chapter three, Nicodemus kind of slips out as Jesus is, is teaching and teaching his disciples as well. We're not really sure where, but remember we said to, to watch for him because he'll show up a couple more times in the gospel of John. The second part of chapter three, which, which Steve Sellers uh, shared with us just before Advent, well, it was describing the ministry of, of John the Baptist and how, how his ministry and his his preparing the way and his uh, starting to point people towards Jesus was starting to take a back seat to the ministry of Jesus. And, and John's disciples were a little worried about this. They're saying, hey, listen, everyone's leaving us and following him. And there we get this, this really important, memorable verse in John three thirty, where where John the Baptist says, he must increase, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. And that really is a call for every one of us as followers of Jesus. Our job isn't to follow Jesus to build our own platforms. Our job isn't to follow Jesus to make much of ourselves, but instead it's to to make less of us and and point to him. We must decrease as he increases. Our call is to influence people towards him, to point people towards him, to make his name great. Now here in chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus' ministry start going out beyond just the Jews. Again, in chapter 3, we saw Nicodemus, who seemed to have it all together. He was well-respected. He had everything going for him. He was one of the, the, the best-taught, best-teaching teachers in the land. And we're gonna, we saw that, that he needs Jesus. He didn't have it all together, actually. And now here in chapter 4, we're going to meet the Samaritan woman who also needs Jesus. That's the thing. Jesus is for everyone, everywhere. So let me start reading for us. John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, uh, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, it was only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus... Wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So here's what we've got here. This is kind of a transitional sort of editorial note, a little bit. There's still plenty in here. We're looking at about noon. The sixth hour is the middle of the day. Jesus so far has mostly been in around uh, Jerusalem a lot. That's where he was leaving from. But he decided it's time to leave the sort of hub of Jewish worship and head back to Galilee, we're told. Now, on the journey, we read that he had to pass through Samaria. Now, in just a minute, we're going to see an, an editor's note here that, 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 that says that John's not just describing the map for us. He's not just helping us understand the land because we're now so far removed. But this is really important that he had to go through Samaria. Jews and Samaritans, they were really close in proximity. Jesus is walking, remember, but the relationships between these two people groups was not good at all. And so even though Jesus and his disciples were taking the most direct route from Jerusalem up to Galilee, the relationship between these two groups was so tense that usually the Jews, the religious Jews and rabbis would actually take another route and walk around Samaria just to avoid coming into contact with them. But Jesus says, listen, I've got to go here. I'm sure he was pretty familiar with the travel routes of that day. So let me suggest again, he is, he is breaking barriers. He is doing the same thing he did in chapter 3, and he's taking the message of, for, for God loved the world in this way that he sent his son to everyone, not just to the Jews, but to Everyone. And so we're seeing here, right even near the beginning of John's Gospel, the beginning of chapter 4 of John's Gospel, that Jesus' message is spreading beyond Judaism. It wasn't just hope for the Jews, but this is a message for everyone, which was always supposed to be the case. Another little quick thing I want to point out here in verse 6, this is maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail, a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important for us. Jesus and the disciples, they're on a long journey. They're walking from Jerusalem up to Galilee. They're traveling in the middle of the day, right? It's the sixth hour. They're walking through the Mediterranean heat. It's hot. They're tired. And Jesus is weary. He needs a rest. He sits down and takes a break while the guys go into town to grab some lunch. And I mention this because, as we've said, John is, is really working hard in his gospel to show us that Jesus is God but he also has no problem showing us the humanity of Jesus too. Yes, Jesus is God, but he's just like us. Remember how he started? The God, God, the word took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He's like us. See, if you and I were walking this path, if we were on this same journey, we would also need a rest. No doubt the disciples in town, they probably sat down while they were waiting to grab their supplies as well. But the idea that Jesus is fully God and also, fully human is not a problem for John. That's why he just almost haphazardly says, oh, Jesus sat down for a rest. And so as, as mind-blowing as that is, that Jesus is fully God and fully human, it's something that we also need to reconcile in our minds. Now, not long after he sits down, we read verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, at the risk of sounding repetitive, it's important to notice that that just before this story, this interaction that we're about to step into, was Jesus with Nicodemus. They're placed pretty much back to back. So again, keep that in mind. Down in verse 9, the woman responds to Jesus. The woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, the point of these two stories, Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman, being so close to one another, being basically back-to-back, is again saying that no matter who you are, you need Jesus. Rich, poor, high-standing, low-standing, Jew, Gentile, religious, secular, it doesn't matter. Jesus came for you. Everyone needs Jesus. Again, just really quickly, consider the differences between Nicodemus and this unnamed Samaritan woman. First, their gender. In this culture, in the first century culture, culture, men were favored. It would have been unusual for a man to even talk to a woman who wasn't family or his wife. Look down a little bit farther. In verse 27, when the disciples came back, it says, it says that they marveled that Jesus was talking to this woman. And beyond just conversations, religious conversations would have been even more unlikely and inappropriate. The second, consider their status. Nicodemus was highly respected. He was the teacher of Israel, and he was a Pharisee. The the Pharisees were known for keeping every single one of the laws and more. They were known for their morality. They were the the ones that that wanted to be known for, for doing everything right. But this woman, she's on the outskirts of her culture. Women would have usually come to get water in the cool of the morning or in the evening, and they would have come in groups, they would have come together, and yet she's here alone. A little bit later, Jesus will ask about a husband, and we'll find that she's had five husbands, and she's now living with another man who's not her husband. Now it, it's entirely possible that each of those first five husbands died, and so she remarried because her husband died, but it's pretty unlikely. And even so, culturally, after wedding number three, even if death had broken them all up, you kind of didn't keep getting married. This town that she lived in, even though it was an important town in Samaria, likely wasn't all that big. And so the people knew her, knew her husbands probably, knew her history, knew who she had been with. Jesus talking with Nicodemus would have been an honor. To have a face-to-face with one of the great teachers of Israel would have been an honor. Talking with her was socially and culturally unacceptable. Yet it's amazing how often we see Jesus criticized for interactions like this one, being called a friend of sinners, which is maybe something to aspire to. The last thing is their, their nationalities. Again, Jews and Samaritans just did not get along. And we get a taste of this in in verse nine there where she says, listen, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you're looking at the NIV version of the Bible, there's actually a footnote on that verse, on verse nine that that says, you could actually translate this passage that the Jews don't use dishes that Samaritans had used. Yet here's Jesus going over all that and saying, listen, can you pull some water and can you pour me a drink from what you've got? Can we share dishes. The animosity between these two groups went back hundreds of years. And just a a quick Old Testament history lesson. Uh, The nation of Israel divided, we can read about that in our Old Testament, divided into the North and South Kingdom. And in 722 BC, the the Northern Kingdom and their capital Samaria was conquered by the Assyrians. Some of the Jews that lived there were, were exiled to Assyria And when the Assyrians came, they settled, and they also imported people from other nations that they had conquered into this new territory of theirs. And the result was that people intermarried, which led to a blended nationality, which was one reason why these Samaritans were looked down on. But it also led to blended worship. Those in Samaria would worship the God of Israel, but also now that they're, they're married and mixing with these other countries, they'd, marry, or they'd worship these other foreign gods. So the animosity between Jews and Samaritans only increased. The Samaritans had, had built their own temple here, and the Jews came and destroyed it uh, a couple hundred years before this story we're reading. So it, this was a big deal. See, socially and culturally, Jesus had every reason not to have this conversation not to talk to this woman, but he did. And with just a simple question, will you give me something to drink? As he so often does, he begins a conversation that goes right to her heart. See again, Jesus is God. Jesus knows her. He cares about her. And he knows that she needs a savior. Both she does and Nicodemus does as well. As one writer says the moral can't be saved by their morality they can only be saved by Jesus and also the immoral are never too immoral to find their salvation in Jesus and so it's this question of Jesus and the conversation that it unpacks is where we want to kind of drill down for the rest of our time as we look at verses 7 through 18 one of the things I love about reading Jesus and his conversations is, is just how his questions, they, they so often have, have dual meanings. And I'm not saying that, that Jesus is asking loaded questions, he's trying to be tricky or he's trying to be sly, but, but he starts with such a simple, disarming, uh, welcoming almost question, but he can go from there to get somewhere so much deeper. Will you give me a drink, he asks. And it's from this beginning where he starts with the everyday reality of thirst, especially in the noonday heat. And it's going to lead to a conversation about her soul and meaning and desire and purpose and identity. She's shocked at this question. But then Jesus turns the question into a spiritual one. Look at verse 10. He says, will you give me a drink? She says, how, how are you going to get a drink here? And he says, listen, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now she's still a little bit confused here. She hasn't made the shift quite in her head yet. She's looking at this hundred foot deep or so well and wondering how on earth Jesus is going to find living water. Living water also meant like flowing water. It's like they went to the spring over at Harvey Heights and Jesus is going to get a, you know, a tub of water from there for her. And so she's thinking, "Listen, this is an arid land. You don't have a bucket. You, there's no way you can get water out of this thing. How are you going to find living waters? There's no springs in this area or we wouldn't be here at this well. We'd probably be there." And so she replies in verse 11, "Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get this living water?" Are you greater than our father Jacob? See, the, the wheels are turning here just a little bit. She's starting to put some things together. She says, he gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Where, where are you going to get that living water, she asks. She points back to the common heritage and history that Jews and Samaritans have, talking about our father Jacob. Before Jesus answers the question, he he wants her to see that that everyone thirsts and everyone needs this living water. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of, of this water from this well, or any other well for that matter, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's interesting that we're talking about thirst again this week. Last week we talked about desires and how our desires unchecked can lead us into hurry and anxiety and restlessness and and how the practice of Sabbath can combat that. And then the week before, Ron talked about the the golden triangle of of seeking happiness through an intimate relationship and and meaning and security. There's, There's a theme here that's running through this. Jesus knows that every single one of us has longings in our hearts, desires that drive us. Jesus is offering something that, that will quench that thirst once and for all. Yet, so many of us look to other things. Some of us, as, as soon as we're feeling a little bit down, we, we pull out our phones or open up the laptop and head over to Amazon and think that next purchase will, will quench that thirst. We, we're a little bit restless, so we make a couple clicks, and in a day or so, sometimes three or four days, we've got a nice box with a big smile on it sitting on the front step. Others of us, well, maybe we used to, but we, we, we would plan and, and, and make plans to go on that next trip to just escape the realities of home. Some of us would, will turn to, to food or drink thinking that next meal or, or that next delicious takeout or that next glass of wine will finally quench the thirst within us. Some people turn to others and other people thinking they'll be satisfied in that next relationship or that next sexual encounter or that next sexual expression. Others turn to drugs or pornography or Netflix or doom-scrolling social media, and on and on it goes. Every one of us thirsts and desires, and if we don't pay attention, those things will overtake us. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon writes this about his search for, for something that would quench that thirst, quench his desires. And in chapter 2, he lists a whole bunch of things he tried to do to fill those inner desires, to fill those, those cravings. He was, he was known as the wealthiest king ever. And Solomon said that he tried laughing, he tried consuming food and drink, he tried building great houses and gardens, accumulating more gold and silver than could be counted, acquiring slaves, acquiring a workforce, building a harem of hundreds of wives and concubines to fulfill every imaginal sexual fantasy. And he was, again, being famous for for his wisdom and his knowledge, he had everything. He did everything. He experienced everything, and here's what he found. Ecclesiastes 2:10 and 11, "Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep for them. keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this is my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, it was vanity, a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying it was vanity, it was, it was meaningless, it was futile. All these things, everything he wanted, left him unfulfilled. Jesus cuts to the heart of this woman's thirst in verse 16. He says, go and call your husband. Come here. She replies, to verse 17, "I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Clearly this woman is looking for something, longing for something and she's not finding it. Or she or, or the men she's been with, let's not let those men off the hook either. She's looking for that intimate relationship that will bring happiness. But the relationships ultimately keep collapsing because no person, no human relationship can bear the weight of an ultimate desire, of an eternal desire. We've used this Augustine quotes several times recently but it fits again here this morning. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now again, it's it's really easy for us to look at what we know of this Samaritan woman and say, look at her. Of, of course she's looking for something. Her life's a disaster, it's so obvious. But let's be really careful before we do that. And let's spend some time looking in the mirror. Let's make sure we look at ourselves first. How did you spend your week? How how much of your time was spent chasing after the things in this world and of this world that you hope will bring meaning and fulfillment? That that perfect, again, takeout meal or home-cooked meal, that that perfect bottle of wine, that quicker time on the Strava segment, that next paycheck, that next workout, that next relationship, that next experience, whatever it might be. Think, too, about Nicodemus. Why did he come to Jesus? It wasn't because he had it all figured out. No, Nicodemus came because he too was thirsty. His entire life he dedicated himself to following every rule, to studying every piece of theology, to knowing all the answers, but it wasn't enough. He needed Jesus. Let's get back to the woman's question. Where do I find this living water. Ultimately, as I I hope we're seeing, she's asking something that we're all asking or have all asked at one point in the past. Where can I find this thing that satisfies ultimately? But actually, as as we read the text, Jesus has already told her. He's already given her that answer. She just hasn't quite put the pieces together yet. Look back at verse 10, which comes right before she asked the questions. Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give it to you. It's such a simple answer that, again, I I think you and I often miss it. It's, It's just too easy for us. How do we find this living water? We go to Jesus and we ask him. That's it. It's such a simple road to start down, but at the same time, it takes a lifetime of discovery to to drink the depths of that spring, to keep with the water metaphor. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, too, but but I think in a lot of ways people reject the gospel and, and people reject Jesus because it's just too simple. We think we have to do it ourselves. We think we have to climb some ladder. We have to to work it out and work for it. We need to find happiness ourselves because we know what we need best and we know what we best need. But let me just say, all of those things, all of those desires of what do I have to do, how do I get there, how do I clean myself up, they're all similar versions of the same lie that says you don't need God. It's wrong. We do need God. Remember the story of the rich young ruler or the rich young man? It comes a little bit later in the Gospels. We can read about it in Luke chapter 18. Do you remember, remember the question he asked Jesus? He comes, he feels pretty put together himself, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think we all have a little bit of that in us. What do I have to do? What we really don't want to admit is that there's actually nothing we can do. We don't want to admit that we're helpless. We'd rather keep going back to that well that we we know doesn't ultimately satisfy because at least it feels like we're doing our part. Jesus says, ask and I'll give it to you. When I was studying this week, there are several other places in the Bible where this living water is talked about Which, I mean, come on, I love that about the Bible. There's dozens of authors, centuries of writing, different countries, even different continents, but it's one big story. It's amazing. In Jeremiah 2, we read about the promise of living water again, coupled with the results of, of rejecting God and, result, and, and rejecting the living water and the emptiness of a life without God. And in Jeremiah 2, 13, we read this. God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've gone and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus has, has promised, or God had promised here, we're talking about in Jeremiah, God had promised his, his chosen people this living water. He'd promised them everything they would ever need if they followed him. But they went in another direction. They decided they knew what's best, And instead of coming back to that well of living water, they say, you know what, I'm going to go get out my own little tools and I'm going to start digging over here and I'm going to start crafting these little bowls that sort of hold water and I'm going to do my own thing with my own efforts. I think this is the the essence of our our postmodern, self-centered thinking today. I know what's best for me. I know how to be happy. I want to do it my way, and everything else should revolve around that. But this is the essence of of what we mean when we're talking about sin. Sin is pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. Pastor Matt Chandler, or Matt Carter, excuse me, helpfully writes, Sin is not fundamentally a failure to check certain moral boxes. We think sin is primarily about the actions we do and we don't do. Sin is when I lie or curse or steal or get angry. But he says, I sin any time I pursue satisfaction in something other than God. That's certainly revealed in lying and cursing and stealing, but it's also seen in pride and self-reliance and apathy. Anytime we pursue satisfaction in something other than God, we commit idolatry. We're placing that thing on the altar of our hearts and giving ourselves to it, hoping it will do for us what only God can do. See, here's the thing. God is not opposed to our happiness and satisfaction. He created us for that. He created those things for us. The problem is that when we try to make temporary things, the things of this life, when we try to make them ultimate things, the things that we'll depend on for our ultimate fulfillment, they can't hold that weight. Maybe for a time, but not forever. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah also talked about uh, this idea. He told the people about a promised Messiah that was coming in Isaiah chapter 11, the one God would send to redeem them from sin and, and draw the people back to himself. We know that now to be Jesus. And then in Isaiah twelve, those people who had been redeemed, who had been drawn back to God, uh, sing this song. And one of the lines says, "You you draw, you joyfully draw from the springs of salvation." This is another living water picture. So, what does Jesus promise her? What does Jesus promise us? I think here's, here's the picture painted by John, painted in this interaction, painted by Jesus here. You and I, we're all travelers through this desert land, through the heat of the world. It's like the, the noonday heat where this, where this story is taking place, where this conversation takes place, and it, it's beating down on us, and our only hope for survival is water. Now we can go the way of Solomon and Ecclesiastes too or Israel and Jeremiah too or the Samaritan woman or Nicodemus or the rich, rich young ruler and we can keep going our own way to try and find water. We can keep going back to work and relationships and activities and religious practices to try to find something that will quench that thirst. And yet without Jesus, all we'll find will be like salt water that leaves us more thirsty than before. C.S. Lewis called this an, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Have you ever, have you ever felt that what Lewis is talking about there? That ever increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure? I, I bet you have. I know I have. All of a sudden that, all, of a, all of a sudden that shiny new whatever isn't quite as shiny and it needs to be replaced. Everyone who's who's ever looked at pornography has felt this. Every time you head to the screen, you, you find a deeper craving and, and less pleasure. Everyone who's experienced an addiction has felt this. It takes more of whatever it is, more of that drug, more of that alcohol, whatever it is, and you get a shorter-lasting effect. Everyone who's been in a codependent relationship, like this woman is, they felt this as the relationship starts to crumble under the weight of expectation, the needs placed on that other person only get stronger. Everyone who's, who's proud and, and self-centered and self-assured has, has felt this. Every time we, we, we get that applause, we get that gladness, that joy from man, we need more and more affirmation to get that same sense of satisfaction and it ultimately matters less and less. And the root of sin is chasing after happiness and meaning and fulfillment and identity in something other than God. And sin produces this ever increasing craving for an ever diminishing pleasure. But look at the promise of Jesus to this woman and to each one of us. If she would turn to Him, her thirst would be quenched. And not just for now. But forever, forever, she'd finally have that living water. Matt Carter, again, helpfully says, Once we turn to Jesus and discover in him the fulfilling, satisfying source of spiritual nourishment, we can drink again and again. The spring always flows. As one pastor south of the border has been saying for years, which actually really ties into our New City Catechism statement off the beginning, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The the best way for us to live is to find our satisfaction in Jesus, in the Lord. And the the best way for us to live is to reject the empty pleasures of this world. Again, Solomon went after them all. You've probably experienced it as well. I know I have. I've put my hopes and, and, and whatever in something and it's cracked and crumbled under that weight. The best way for us to live is to turn to Jesus and trust him to meet all of our needs. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you for this story. Thank you that you left Jerusalem and went to Galilee and you, you brought your message to the Gentiles, that your message is for every one of us. Thank you for your promise of living water. Thank you that, that, that you promised to bring us life. We'll get to it in a couple of chapters. You say the, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life, abundant life, flourishing life, life full of meaning, Thank you that you came to show us how to rightly relate to God and to others and to creation. Thank you that you you took our sin, all the ways that we look to other things for that ultimate satisfaction. You you took the, the penalties and punishment for that on your own body and you went to the cross for us. And you died for our sin, the consequences of our actions, of my actions. But three days later, you conquered death and sin itself. And said, the way is open. Come and have life. Come and have this living water. Come and have this eternal satisfaction. Thank you for all these things. I pray that as we head towards a close here this morning, that we wouldn't forget about this message, that we wouldn't forget about the living water, but that we would see ourselves either in Nicodemus trying to be perfect and still wanting, or in, or in the Samaritan woman who's, who's tried everything and still feels empty or somewhere in between. And realize that, Jesus, your message is for everyone, everywhere, and we can come to you. We pray this thing in Jesus' good name. Amen.